Hello and welcome to episode four of the podcast. Today, Mika and I are interviewing Dr. Sophie Brock, who is a motherhood studies sociologist and single mother to her three-year-old daughter living in Sydney, Australia. She supports both mothers and professionals who work with mothers to understand the sociological construction of motherhood and how this shapes individual mothers' lives. Sophie advocates for a reimagined version of motherhood that sees mothers supported, valued and empowered. We also discussed today how she offers a variety of online courses, mentoring packages and her Motherhood Studies Practitioner Certification Program. You may also know her from the podcast, The Good Enough Mother, in which she hosts, and she's also the president of the non-profit association, Maternal Scholars Australia. Today was such a fun interview with Sophie. She delved into the topics of understanding motherhood, mum guilt and judgment, We touched on a philosophy known as hegemonic maternality. These are all highly complex issues interwoven with the fabrics of society. But Sophie manages to break it all down for us using a really beautiful anecdote about a fish in a tank. More of that to come on this week's episode. Knowledge is power and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petrucci. And And this this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, Dr. Sophie Brock. Welcome to The Science of Motherhood. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm looking forward to this conversation and I love the name of your podcast. (laughs) Thank you. Didn't take us long. Um, (laughs) It just kind of like we just figured, you know, science, motherhood, this is is who we are. Um, Sophie, so I first came across you on Instagram and you were talking a lot about mum rage (laughs) and I can tell you, that resonated a lot with me. Um, my daughter is three and a half now, so it was a while ago in those newborn kind of phases, but I distinctly remember having a lot of rage and a lot of things were thrown <laughs> in those first six months. And honestly, I thought it was just I, – I put it down to sleep deprivation, but – I now kind of know from listening to your podcasts and, you know, following you for quite some time now through the socials that that's probably one piece of the puzzle when it comes to mum rage. Did you want to give us a bit of a background on who you are, where you've kind of come from and how you have come to understand the term mum rage? Sure. Um, so I started studying motherhood. Um, I've always been fascinated by motherhood, even since I was sort of a child and a teenager, and not necessarily in the ways that others suppose. People can kind of assume, oh, you're interested in motherhood, you must really want to be a mum, or you must love being a mum, and that's why you're interested in it. And I always um, am curious about that response and what it means because researchers and people who study things study all sorts of things that they're interested in and have relationship with that doesn't necessarily mean they're completely defined by it. Um, So that in and itself is an interesting observation, but 
I came to do um, my PhD from University of Sydney. Um, I came across motherhood studies, which is kind of an, an interdisciplinary area of research and study focusing on motherhood. And I chose to focus specifically in my PhD research on mothers who have children with disabilities, um, but looking at their experiences from a kind of mother-centered approach, um, at their sense of identity, their relationships and their experience of motherhood. And so that kind of opened a whole world of me for me um, in exploring motherhood identity and relationships um, for my own experience when I became a mum and so I undertook that research um, actually right before I became a mum. I received my um, confirmation of my award a week before I went into labour with my daughter. Wow. (laughs) She was two weeks overdue so I think that she was waiting for me (laughs) to receive that. Yes. Um, And so yeah that was um, my daughter's three and a half now as well a three and a half year old Um, and I had a challenging transition to motherhood I think many do Um, but I kind of had a curiosity and I suppose as you would both understand being from a kind of science perspective, there's this kind of inbuilt curiosity and that we take that with us in all aspects of our life, not just in our work, but um, I kind of took that lens and perspective and interrogated my experience and became even more interested in the experiences of other mothers I was witnessing around me. And that has kind of led to the birth, if you will, the creation of my business, um, my podcast. And so my research expertise didn't actually cover mum rage um, or anger. That's been something that I've come to um, through my own experience. And I went to the literature going, okay, what does it say? What I need to kind of, I'm interested in this. Like, let's see what I can find out about it. And uh, what I came across was actually a real absence of discussion of maternal rage in the ways that I was searching for. I was interested in it based on the mother's experience in and of herself. I I wasn't just interested in it because of the impacts maternal rage can have on children. Um, So there's, that's a kind of theme that can come up quite often in uh, doing maternal research is that it comes back to looking at the mother because of what impact she has on children and on others, which yes, is important, but the mother is also important to study in and of herself. And so that's kind of what led me um, to going down that path of, of talking about and researching and, and speaking to others about maternal rage and anger. That's oh, I think you're speaking our language. Oh, Sorry, Renee. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about being focused on the mother rather than the outcomes for the baby, which, of course, are so important as well, but focusing on the mum and her experience in that. But um, it's so interesting because I think in general the topic of anger and women isn't discussed enough in public. There's not that much information on it and women who get angry are sort of either cast aside as, you know, these crazy women or they just, you know, sort of blow up after holding on to things for so long um i don't think even just for even non-mothers as women our connection to anger and our ability to express our anger um isn't something that's i think as normal as it is for men um and even the terms you think that are used to describe a woman who's angry are so negative um compared to like a man when he gets angry so um yeah i think this has got really wide reaching implications and it sounds really interesting and i can't wait to to keep diving in um but I did want to ask you what in terms of the outcomes from your PhD. I know you're not doing that research right now, um, but I was just curious with the mothers with children with disabilities and how that affected their mothering experience. What were some of the main outcomes from that work? Uh, so some of the main things that came out of that study was actually some conceptual results. So looking at the relationship between um, the individual woman, mother, participant in the research and the broader social context and environment in which she is mothering. Um, and so the kind of main theoretical outcome is a term um, I I framed as, and I know this is this is jargony, but I'll translate it, um, is hegemonic maternality. Oh, can so, I buy a vow? So? <laughs> Say it three times quickly. <laughs> hegemonic maternality. Yes, I know. What it's is that? that? Okay, so um, to explain it as simplistically as possible, let me tell you a little analogy. And this, and this, is what I use in my work with mothers now. And I never talk about it as hegemonic maternality, like never. But I'll talk about it in a a way that is surprisingly simplistic and it's through using an analogy of a fish tank. Mm -hmm. And so think about a a round glass fish tank and there's the little fish 
inside of it. And so we're going to think of this fish tank as being representative of society. That's our social world. That's our environment. That's the place that we live. There are our structures. And that fish tank looks different according to what society you're in, what part of the world you're located within, what historical context you're living within. Um, it's shaped by social socioeconomic factors mm -hmm. um and so written on that tank and we could take this for anything like institutional racism or i'm talking about motherhood specifically but if we take that tank and we go okay what is written up on the walls of that tank around what it means to be a mother in our society mm -hmm. certain things are on there right so you're assumed to be able-bodied your child's assumed to not have additional needs you're generally expected to be white heterosexual, in a monogamous relationship, married. Um, you're expected to love motherhood, to have intended to be a mother, to never lose your temper and get angry. You're expected to have fine fulfillment and joy and ease and contentment in your children and in your role of being a mother. Um, the mother is seen to have full responsibility for mothering, yet at the same time, it's what Adrian Rich terms powerless responsibility. So you have all this responsibility. The blame comes back on you. It's on your shoulders if things go wrong. Yet your power and maternal voice and authority as a mother can be undermined and dismissed and said, oh, what does she know? She's just the mum. You know, those are, that's some of the phrasing that my participants in my research actually experienced um, in kind of medical appointments and so forth. So basically written on the outside of this tank are all of these shoulds and expectations. But the thing is, is that they're taken for granted as normal. They're taken for granted as natural, as just the way that it is, as the way that it's meant to be and the way that is best for our children. Mm. And so we're the fish, the mums are the fish inside that tank, and we're swimming around looking at the walls, seeing that as just our place, space. We can't see beyond that. That's just the way that it is for us. And if we're struggling with that, and if we feel as though we can't live up to the norms that have been set, well, it's something wrong with us. We need to get better. We need to, to do more, to be more. We're struggling because of a personal deficit there's something wrong with us we're not coping rather than looking at the system and going hang on a second what's written up on that tank um there's the prop there actually a lot of the problems are up there but it works to keep that structure and that tank together to convince us it's on us and that's why mum guilt is so pervasive because mum guilt is a result of us discipline our disciplining ourselves according to the tank and I wanted to just put like a little asterisk there to say mum guilt isn't just that guilt can also be really important and instructive to our values so kind of just flagging that but not only do we discipline ourselves and we judge ourselves according to the tank we judge other mothers too um, we have other mothers and other people in society judging us and I talk about this um, with the women I work with in the sense of if you're going to push against the tank, you're going to get resistance from that. So if you're like this little fish and you imagine the little fish swimming towards the tank and kind of ramming it and going, I'd like to create a little crack here. I'd like to create a little shift. You're going to have other fish in the tank being like, what are you doing? Stop it. Do not rock the boat in that way. Get back into line. Don't you know the rules? Um, that's really threatening. And so that's part of the, this is part of a way of describing how power works through relationships in our culture so that in in a really kind of simplified way is a description of what hegemonic maternality means it means the way in which individuals experience regulation power control through the broader social structure of motherhood does that make sense absolutely that really resonated with me um Mika? Oh, same you? here. I'm like, just like no. I was just getting everything. goosebumps. I was like, oh god, this is, this is so true. And I mean, we we see this day in and day out. And I think that was one of the motivations around why we do what we do as postpartum doulas. Because for me, I mean, I I quit a very high paying job because I got to the point where I was like, enough is enough. Um. I want to spend more time with my daughter, but 
I think what needs to happen is I need to be doing something with my life which is bigger than this, which is bigger than, you know, working in a law firm. It's And who needs more help than mums? Like it, it just, yeah, that demographic as well. So on that note, Sophie, what do you think needs to happen, you know, whether it be – in our own communities, whether it be nationally in Australia, world, have you got any, you know, areas that you think need to change socially, culturally, politically for motherhood, mothering, you know, for us to be respected and valued? What do you think the first steps are for us to start moving in in a better direction than we, than we are right now? Yeah, I, um, I'm smiling as I'm listening to your question. <laughs> I'm like, how long have you got this? I mean, this is what I'm dedicating my, yeah. this is my life passion yeah. um, to make these changes. And uh, I will first also say that I do not have all the answers and I don't pretend to. Um, and I think that the first step is actually recognizing that and, and not pretending as though we can figure this out, because I think the more surety and certainty we have about solutions, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, the more likely it is we can get so attached to our answers as being the solutions that we can sometimes miss what actually could make real significant change. And so not actually getting too tied to those outcomes, but really keeping in and holding a vision of what is possible for mothers, motherhood, and for our families and communities. Um, And so the way that I think about this is that in order to create broader social, structural, economic, political change, um, there are lots of ways that we can intersect and and, um, work towards that. The way that I've chosen to focus on for now in my business is through individual transformation within mothers. So in that fish tank analogy going, all right, we could work at changing the tank and the ways that we would do that would be organisationally politically, deciding to lobby, deciding to join non-profit organisations, looking at the broader structural stuff. And I think that research within an academic setting would be counted as part of that. Um, Then we can go actually and look at the relationship between the tank and the fish. So how can we support um, professionals in order to better support mothers? How can we look at the way that we're facilitating um, language and pathways into support for mothers and making that more accessible? Um, And then we can also look at the individual fish, so to speak, the individual mothers and say, okay, let's start on, I think of it almost as like culturally detoxing of going, okay, let's examine the ways that I have been socialized into this role. And it's not as simple as saying, um, you know, this side of me socialized, this side of me are my inherent core values because our values are shaped by our socialization. So there is this intermingling. Um, but to go through this process with ourselves first, mm. to start to push back on the things that we've taken on as a truth for ourselves that may not necessarily be the case and not only may not necessarily be the case, but can actually be detrimental and be harming us and to be detracting from our experience of motherhood and connected with that, taking away from our children as well. So that's where um, I I focus a lot of my energy um, and in supporting professionals as well to support mothers to be able to do that because I think once we go through that process, each of us, as both professionals and mothers, we are then able to more clearly form connections with each other and it's through those connections that I think we can start to take steps towards resisting and ultimately changing the institution of motherhood. Um, but it'll take it'll take a while. It'll take a long time. I don't know if we'll see it in our lifetime. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. It's It's like trying to change the culture of a workplace. You have to start with the individuals themselves and um, – I've, I've definitely been through a few changes of workplaces, but I agree. I think I, I really like the work that you do. Um, I know you've got a few courses that, you know, both professionals and just, you know, um, individuals can join up to. I particularly like the Bloom one, the Growing Through Maternal Anger one. I think I'm going to sign up to that. <laughs> That is the hardest course to get people to join because oh, really? 
Yeah, yeah. It's the course that I think is most relevant to all mothers, but it's the hardest to get people to join because in order for a mother to join that, she first needs to have done the work in order to be able to recognize that anger is something she wants to be able to work on and work through. She needs to be able to believe that she can make a change and she needs to be able to have a robust enough sense of self that identifying with being an angry mother because that's part of what you're doing if you're signing up to a course on maternal anger that doesn't define your worth and your value as a mother so it's a it's a it's really hard but as as i said to everyone who's joined the course i'm like the fact that you've joined this course in and of itself you've started to do the work on this 100 percent. and i'm just going to touch on that point that that work on you know on self i um i've been very open with this on the socials and with all my you know friends and things like that i did a lot of work um, with my therapist and actually it's our 10 year anniversary this month. So whoop, whoop. congratulations. Um, I, I had a, I had a really big issue with, um, the identification of self. And when I became a mum, I went downhill again because I really struggled with that transition you know the matrescence you know becoming a mother and losing that identity because as we've spoken about in the previous podcast Mika um, with my birth story I had always been this career orientated person I was you know straight into from high school to university and then I went did honours, PhD, straight into the workforce. And I was always, to me, I was just um, work, 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 work. And that's what I identified with. I was also, you know, I had um, my husband, so I was a wife and, and things like that. But when I became a mother, it was such uncharted territory for me. And I just, I didn't like it at all because I I, I really had to um, – have a have a change of focus and I distinctly remember this one moment in I think it was my second mother's group and a girl who I became quite good friends with straight after this meeting we were constantly going around the circle talking about you know what was happening with our babies and I remember she put her hand up and she said sorry can I just interrupt the conversation who here is grieving about the person who they used to be? And I I locked eyes with her and I just had tears in my eyes because I thought, oh, my God, finally someone else here is actually on the same page as me. And I really, yeah, I really, really struggled with that loss of self. And, you know, I've had to do some more work in the past three years to kind of get on board and accept the new person that I am. Um, so I think I'd be ready for the maternal, ang- for the maternal <laughs> anger course, to be honest. Oh, I think motherhood is such a great opportunity or sometimes a forced opportunity to do that hard work on yourself. Oh, like yeah. I've certainly found my daughter's a little bit younger than both of yours. She's two and a half. Um, but in that time I've, learnt so much you know good and bad and gone through yeah it's just quite an incredible chance to really evaluate your life and where you're at and to try and you know even if you're trying to parent in a different way than you're parented and just all of those sort of things Um, and yeah working out who you are as a mother as well and finding um, the value in that and I think it's yeah I think it's a work in progress I'm sure it'll probably be till our kids are much much older but it's definitely a really I'm grateful I have to say I'm grateful for the chance to to do that work and I'm open to to learning more and trying to improve um, in that way but I, I I did think Sophie your message of like starting with us as the individual is quite empowering for a woman rather than or a mother waiting for you know the high level changes to come through empowering them and obviously those connections you were saying mother to mother you know we're all about women supporting women um i think is a really great way to start this revolution which is also something that we're really passionate about too and 
And we've certainly, you know, jumped out of the tank, I think, by changing our careers from, you know, really high workload, academic, you know, law-based professions to be postpartum doulas. But um, I think following something that you truly believe in and it's going to make a difference in people's lives is is really important. But um, I did want to ask you just quickly back on when you were describing that fish tank um, experience and you are saying how we judge other women it's probably a really loaded question, but when we judge other mothers, is that sort of like a protective mechanism if like we feel like we're not meeting all those different, you know, lists on the tank that we jump in and judge other mothers or is it just an instinctive thing that we do because obviously it's not a helpful thing I think for anyone. But could you maybe explain a little bit more around that judgment if you have um, sure. yeah, something more to say on that? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that this connects in with um, – a theme that kind of came through when both of you were sharing your reflections around your motherhood and your experience in your matrescence, you know, transition to motherhood. And that's around value and worth. Um, and so we're living in a society in a context where value and worth is often seen to be inherently connected with financial output and economic value, um, whereas they're not the same thing. Um, but the way that we're set up, and even if you go back to when we were children ourselves, if we're being motivated to do something in order for an outcome um, and, you know, intrinsic motivation, for example, is perhaps devalued in favour of extrinsic and we're looking for outcomes and rewards and, and what can I tangibly show for the effort that I put Put in here and we're rewarded for that throughout our childhood and throughout our young adult life also as well and particularly in um in workplace context corporate context it's about um outputs and seeing change and being able to make a difference and see what difference you're making and the real challenge that a lot of women can experience when they transition into motherhood, particularly if they transition um, at a latter stage of their life or after they've had a well-established career, is a, actually a transition in value and systems of worth that they're operating within because they've been taken from a system that they perhaps have embedded their identity quite fully within and are rewarded and they can see the criteria you know you have your performance reviews you have your promotions that you go for you have uh, things that you can tick off your list and then when you become a mum it's like all of that's just wiped away and it's like you can spend all day on your feet constantly doing things that are then constantly undone and you are working as hard as ever yet no one is seeing what you're doing as work and you are putting your all into this and trying your hardest yet feeling as though you can't get ahead and then you go out and you get a question from somebody about what do you do and you say I'm on maternity leave or I'm just is in air quotes for those who can't see us you know, I'm just a mum and we're tapping into the language of our culture which devalues care work it devalues work that does not have financial reward and so two ways that we can challenge that, and then I'm kind of moving back into your question, Mika, is um, the two ways we can challenge that is first by saying not everything of value needs to have economic output attached to it. So we can value things without being paid for them. And to say mothering is economically valuable. <laughs> um, there's a figure, you know, floating around. It depends what research you look at, and it's like, $200 billion, you know, is how much unpaid care work is worth in an Australian context. Um, and, you know, more or less than that, but it's just billions and billions of dollars is what it's worth. And you think about the consequences to our economy if all mothers put their hands up and said, I'm not doing this work anymore for one day. You know, for one day, I will not do any of the physical, mental, emotional labor that is required in caring for my children, my family, my parents, my friends, my community, and everything would collapse. Okay, so there's there's that to just kind of preface um, your question with in terms of judgment. And so if we go into motherhood and we are looking for value, we're looking for a way to try and solidify our sense of worth and purpose. And this means that decisions can feel really, really big. And so whether you sleep train or don't sleep train yeah. baby led wean or you know all of the different um <laughs> the the choices are framed firstly as choices when they're not complete choices choices are made in a context and they're constrained by context but also 
they're seen as dichotomies, like either or, you have to kind of pick your camp. Um, and so if we sort of pick our camp and we're looking for a place to ground ourselves and find belonging and we join some Facebook groups with like-minded mums and we click with a mum at the park and we meet up and we parent in the same way and, okay, great, I'm sort of feeling the ground a little bit more solid again and I can kind of see the worth and value in my, my motherhood. I'm starting to build a picture of that. And then you have another mother come in doing the exact opposite to what you're doing. And that can feel incredibly threatening and unsettling. First, because it can be like, but I've tried so hard to do things the right way for me. Like, let me help you and teach you. You know, there could be this sense of like, oh, you're not a far, as far ahead in your journey as I am. Like, let me support you in that. And it can be support that's kind of uh, veiling judgment. But it can also be a sense of... Um, this, in order to really believe that there are multiple truths, that would require me letting go of my own certainty that the the way that I'm doing it is the right way. And so <laughs> it's a complex answer, but I hope that sort of answers part of your question there in going that usually that judgment outwards is less about the other person and it's it's often just about ourselves. And the more solid that we can get in our sense of self, our value, our worth, the less we will be likely to judge other mothers and the more immunity we'll have to receiving judgment from others. Yes, I was just nodding along the Me whole too. time through oh that. God. I think you touched on so many things that I've been aware of and so many things I haven't been aware of. And I think this thank you so much for that answer is actually what I want to say first. I think that really... It's something that our mums and podcast listeners, you know, even that aren't mums need to hear. Um, there's so much in that. I can definitely relate to the value and worth and financial, um, you know, burden and outcomes, having taken an extended time off work and being a just stay-at-home mum. And I have been guilty of using that language myself. Um, and I think it's only more recently that I'm like, no, 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 what I'm doing is critical for this household it is so important and I actually heard on another podcast someone describing mothers as having the most important job in the world because we're actually teaching our children to love and to be happy healthy human beings and there's nothing more important than that and I completely agree with it but I think so often we can undervalue ourselves and, and you've given some great examples as to why that happens um and there is some, definitely there's some comfort, I think, when you meet a mum who's doing things similar to you. And I think understanding more of that, um, you know, because Renee and I had a lot of similar overlaps with our mothering styles. And there is comfort in that. But I totally agree those multiple truths need to exist because there's so many different ways of mothering. There's not just one correct way. There's so many different ways we can do it. And um yeah, the sooner we can let go of that judgment and support each other in our choices. And like you said, like I've just had one of my favourite things about motherhood is I've learnt that I can change my mind. <laughs> like I'm going to try this. Oh, it didn't work. You know what? I'm going to try something else the next day and that's okay. So that's been really refreshing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, thank you. That's touch on that veil of judgment because – and I don't know whether this comes under the same – um, kind of umbrella, but I, I hope that I was, I don't, I don't think I was judging, but I had this real need to, um, rescue, I want to say, but not educate maybe in terms of, and maybe it was particularly with you, Mika, because you're 12 months, almost to the day, 12 months behind me. And so I kind of felt like, um, oh my, not the mistakes that I made, but perhaps these are the things that worked for me. And I've had, you know, I've had such a hard time with particularly sleep deprivation, like Eva just wasn't a fantastic sleeper and I didn't understand that you know catnapping was normal um and you know we had a sleep trainer come at f when she was four months old because I was literally at wit's end I was like I can't do another day of this by myself like something I was like there's something wrong there's something wrong I need someone to come in and fix it um and I remember talking to you about 
sleep and sleep training, I was like, oh, we're doing this program now and it's amazing. And I just felt like I wanted to help everyone because I thought I don't want anyone else to have to go through what I'm going through. But now in hindsight, I kind of think to myself, my God, I hope people didn't think that I was like, if you don't sleep train, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm judging you and, and things like that. But I definitely echo your statement, Mika. The, I think mums are really good at being adaptable, but it is accepting the fact that you can change your mind and that's okay. Did you want to add anything else to that, Mika? No, I think it was, yeah, I totally agree. I think that, you know, to want to help another mother feels very natural. So it was nice to sort of dig behind that and see if there are any alternative um, motives at all. Um, But I did want to ask you something that you said at the start of the podcast, Sophie. You were saying that you had a challenging um, entrance or transition into motherhood. Is that something you're open to talking about at all? If you're not, that's totally fine as well. But just when you said it, I was like, you know, it just caught my ear because I think like you said, especially if you've had that career workforce and we discussed it a little bit, um, it is challenging. But we'd love to know... Um, a bit more about your story and um, that experience if you're happy to talk about it. So yeah I am happy to talk about my entrance into motherhood and it's an interesting thing to reflect on because it's actually what motivated me to start my business Um, but my shifts around I have shifted the way that I discuss my entrance into motherhood and and I'll explain to you the reason why after I explain (laughs) my entrance into motherhood um and so basically I was married um I'd been with my husband for seven-ish years and um I lost my dad to motor neurone disease in March of 2016 um he died yeah thank you um he died after a 20-year battle um he was diagnosed with three to five years to live and survive for 20 so that was amazing Um, But that was just completely life-shattering in every way. Um, And then I got pregnant in November of that year and I actually found out on my dad's birthday that I was pregnant, um, which was beautiful. Yeah, heartbreaking and beautiful. Um, And then I had my baby in July. And as we kind of piecing together all of the different things, like as I was pregnant, that's when I was completing my dissertation my PhD so I submitted that when I was about six months pregnant um, and then received the award of that right before I gave birth Um, and what my main um, I think of it as almost like a precipice of you know life before and life after Um, but I found out that my husband was having an affair when I was 42 weeks pregnant and that discovery sent me into labor and yes, so <laughs> that would send me into labor as well. Yes. Um, and so that sent me into labor. Then I moved out of our home when my daughter was five days old and I went in to stay with my mom. Um, and basically over the first sort of six weeks of my daughter's life, that was the breakdown of my marriage. Um, and then the rebuilding of my life, <laughs> um, my identity and my world happened at the same time that I was transitioning into motherhood. And so that kind of whole experience of basically breakdown happened at the same time as my entryway into motherhood. And so it's really complex and it involves a lot of grappling with, you know, grief, relationship, identity, like a lot of things that I studied. Um, And how I started processing my way through that was through writing. Um, And then it was through sharing bits of my writing that I started an Instagram account. Um, And then everything kind of started rolling from there. And the reason that I've shifted the way that I talk about my entrance into motherhood, and I focus more now, particularly in my business on my role as a sociologist of motherhood um, is because I made a really conscious decision probably about a year after, maybe a little later than that, sort of like 18 months afterwards where I was like, I'm no longer going to be a victim of my own life. You know, like this, this experience is not going to define my life story. I'm not going to be 
in 20 years into the future and this will have shaped and defined who I am. Yes, it plays a big role and yes, it was a defining point in my life and changes things forever more, but I'm going to build from this. I'm going to grow from this. It's going to be my strength and it's not going to be my defining feature. And so I kind of made a shift away from introducing myself with those terms and with that story. Um, but I also recognize, and that's why I'm happy to still talk about it because it's part of who I am. It's part of why I'm here. It's part of why I'm passionate about talking about motherhood and the support of women. Um, and now everything is so much better in my life. And I have a really good relationship with my ex-husband um, and the way that we have sort of navigated this journey um, to the point that we are today. And um, I see being a single mom as my point of power and a real um, something that really adds value to my life rather than takes away from it. So that's a little bit about my entrance into motherhood um, and yeah, an explanation for how and why I frame it in the way that I do. Did mm. you find that, uh, I guess, having that research background in motherhood studies, did you, what did you draw on in that moment? And did that assist you along the way of processing, becoming a mum, obviously your relationship breaking down, or did you go back and dig a bit further into other research? Like what were the resources that you that you used? Um, honestly, in probably like the first six months, um, I'm, sh I'm sure that it impacted me in some way because that's part of building my sense of identity and who I am, yes. Sure. But when you're in for me anyways, I won't say when you, but when I was in crisis mode, I'm not drawing on research. I'm not going to the papers. I'm trying to survive day to day and 100%. put one foot in front of the other, right? And so I think that that is also um, a good reminder for anyone out there who is really struggling and at a, a point of crisis and low point that sometimes actually the best thing to do isn't to go and try and resource yourself with a whole bunch of information. It's just about doing the one next thing that you need in order to get through. And that usually comes back to relationship, like finding someone who is resourced enough to support you and they can go out and do the research and find the professionals to help you because you're really in a space where you aren't able to think clearly. Um, and I really, you know, I had this, <laughs> a lot of challenges around sleep as well. And um, I don't think I opened my laptop for the first six months. And I went back in to give a, a seminar at uni when, I don't know, she was probably about that old six months. And um, it just felt like I was in a totally different world. And um, it's basically just been a slow kind of rediscovery and rebuilding of who I am and my identity since that point. And, and more and more my, I wouldn't even say, you know, so much my research, but just my um, perspective as a researcher, you know, as somebody who is curious and somebody who is looking at meanings and patterns and and things, getting curious about things that are beyond what we're currently seeing, like that is what was most useful to me um, rather than the research itself. Does yeah, that make sure. sense? No, 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 mm. absolutely. Thank you so much, though, for sharing yeah. that part of your story, Sophie. We really appreciate you being authentic and, it, you know, it sounds like it's, you know, in the long term everything seems to have worked out well and okay, um, but it, as you were talking, I was just thinking, oh, these are not the things a mum needs leading into the postpartum period where you really need to be resting, connecting with that baby. I think dealing with all of the emotions you must have been going through um, would have been quite challenging at that time on top of, you know, not having much sleep and, and I suppose, you know, not, not having the support network that you thought you were going to have. Um, so we really appreciate you sharing all of that um, with us and, um I did want to ask as like a little add-on, did you have much planning or um, idea of what you wanted your postpartum period to look like? Um, um, so it's hard because I, you know, I recognise as well that, you know, memory is reconstructed, isn't it? So it's like, you know, always thinking back to, okay, what was, what was it like for me? And thinking about the lens that I have now and placing on that experience. Um, 
But I, I did think about it. I had hired a private midwife, and so um, I wanted. I was very conscious about that decision, um, and looking at the evidence around birth outcomes and the way that I wanted my my birth and um, my postpartum experience to kind of look like and how it could be shaped. Um, and having the con- continuity of care was really important to me. Um, and so I, in my midwife was, I love her. She was so strict with me. She really reinforced. She's like, you do not get out of bed. <laughs> She's like, you stay in bed. You know, you need to stay in bed for like, I don't know, I think she said five days or something or other, like basically saying I needed to be waiting hand and foot um, I answered the door and she came I think on the second second or third day and she was like what are you doing answering the door get back to bed <laughs> um and so she was she was wonderful in terms of have, setting it up for me to expect to be cared for you know to expect that and know that it, sh- it shouldn't be me doing everything I shouldn't be getting up making cups of tea for people when they come over you know I needed to be cared for um, and so I, I definitely had um, that. I had my mum and my sister living close by um, who were at my birth and who were a wonderful support. And I had envisaged it sort of being, um, yeah, a period of kind of support and, and celebration. And look, it, it was, but just in a very different way. Um, as I said, you know, I was going over and just shoving my, I had spent so much time getting my nursery sorted, you know, with the baby clothes. I'm like, that was fun, you know, setting up the little singlets and where will I put the nappy bin here or here? And oh, what about little cotton buds and like setting everything up in the, in the cupboard. And then, you know, of course I'm just like, <laughs> and, four days or five days postpartum just had plastic bags and just going, all right, I'm just guesstimating that I'm going to need this and this and this and just shoving it in a bag. I go and I'm like, a lot of the, you know, I think that's testimony to a lot of the things that we can, we, again, I'm talking kind of like socially and culturally that we can place importance and emphasis on actually doesn't end up mattering. And I'm sure in your postpartum doula and work, you would see that as well, wouldn't you? The, the expectations that are set up that are really unrealistic. Hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, am like, don't worry about the wall decals. Your baby does not give a shit about those. Oh, yeah. um, and the same. The it's just like. like, oh, you've got to have all of this. Oh, I did the same. I've got to have everything organised, whatever. And I remember my husband saying to me, Renee, it like honestly just get over it. It's like she's not going to care whatsoever. Mm. But it's our, that's our identity, that's us. Yes, because we want the Instagram worthy um, Mm. snap of look at my baby nursery. Not that I'm saying like there's anything wrong with that, but the priorities for me, like it should have been, I should have meal planned more. Like I think I had two things in the freezer and I was like, I'll be fine. Like babies sleep so much during the day. I'll like, I'll be able to cook. Um, and that's actually one of the things I really missed because I love cooking. Um, but yeah, I was just so hell bent on having the baby shower and having everything organized in the room. And it's just like, no, Renee, that was not what I should have been focusing on. Yeah. You know, that's just in and of itself, right? Like, I should have been doing this. I should have been doing that. Like, we use our lang- that language a lot as women and as mothers. And I think it's always, it's, um, it can be really revealing as well to, to look at motivations that were there that were not necessarily explicit. And we have such a lack of reverence and honouring of the transition into pregnancy and motherhood for women that we kind of grasp at what we can and what we know and what our culture tells us. And our culture and our society and the baby registries and all of that tells us that those things matter and that those things are what honours this transition. And so it's kind of going, yes, like focusing on the power of us individually and in both of the work that you would do and other doulas do in supporting women through this transition and and offering alternatives, but um, and also recognizing so yes, the, the individual does have a lot of agency and power here, but also we're socialized into a particular way of being and transitioning into motherhood as well, aren't we? Um, so yeah, having that compassion for ourselves as well and seeing you know, the reasons why we did things. I, I have a memory of um, I went like to Target three times to find these. Uh, frames that I would put, I wanted to put above her cot, like three Uh, same frames with different, like, you know, a picture from our wedding and a picture when I was pregnant. And and, um, I really needed to get the frames the same because otherwise they'd be mismatched. And, you know, it's so important, Sophie. And (laughs) I 
I went back and I got everything set up above the cot and I was standing back and sort of marveling at it. I'm like, yeah, that looks really good. It looks just how I imagined. And then one of the picture frames fell off the wall and smashed. Oh, and oh no. that was just, and you know, as, as, as well now, you know, looking back on that. So what does that mean, right? Looking at the ways that actually I'm yearning for a sense of control. I want Mm -hmm. there to be a pattern. I want there to be a sense of I made something. I can see the tangible outcome. This is me doing something. This is me representing myself. And then it falls, the unpredictability, you know, we don't have ultimate control. It smashes. And what are we left with? We're left with picking up the pieces and trying to rearrange the pattern to rearrange something to make meaning from it in a way that we're going to be able to integrate into our identity so um you know all of all of that stuff again like there's a lot of meaning there that that gives us an opportunity to um learn more about ourselves i suppose Absolutely. And were you similar to me in the sense that like you would go to all of this effort to get matching things or to hang things up and you'd be like, yes. And then someone else would come in and if they didn't validate and go, oh, wow, that looks amazing. Or I really love that. Where did you get that from? I'd be like, did you see that? I did that today. And like my husband would be like, oh yeah, that looks, that looks all right. I would just bubble I would just be like you've got to be kidding me that took me like so long to do but you're right though because and I think I was explaining this in the previous podcast with Mika because I had gone from workplaces where you know it was um you were rewarded as a team but more so as an individual and so as you say you know you go through like promotions and and like you know achievements and things like that and then you get to motherhood and this tiny little human and you're putting all of your energy into this kid and you're literally like it's energy force you if you've chosen to breastfeed you know, you're feeding this this child everything and they give you nothing for so long. And it is such, to me, it was such an isolating um, first couple of months. Uh, it was really, really tough because I didn't get, I, I was used to that high five in the corridor or well done with this and that sense of achievement. Oh, I got that that matter out. That client was really happy with X, Y, Z or whatever. Now my new client, she gave me nothing. <laughs> like, there was nothing going on. And I really struggled with that a lot. Mm, yeah. yeah. Well, go ahead, Mika. Oh, sorry. I, um, I was just going to say, I think so many women can relate to that. And I think, you know, even what you were saying, Sophie, in your last answer is that, you know, and I'm so glad you had that midwife. I think everyone needs someone who's oh, telling them yeah. to get back to bed. Like what do they say? Five days in the bed, five days on the bed, and five days around the bed. Like at least you need to be resting. But I think so much of what you've both touched on comes down to, one, the lack of um, recognition of what a sacred and important time postpartum is for women and mothers to be. And we actually just put a post up about this today, um, that birth is the start line. It's not the finish line, but so often it's the finish line of where the mother's considered, like pregnancy's done, you've had the baby, now it's all baby-focused. But I think having some, you know, understanding of what postpartum is going to be like, that you do need to be resting, you do need to be cared for, and that is so normal in, you know, most societies outside of the western part of the world it's really common and I think also what you were saying with Renee so often for us as women you know when we have our own babies our first experience at really seeing motherhood like breastfeeding nappy changing being with a baby all day because we're not in our villages anymore watching other mums be mums before it's our turn so it is a shock it is a change in identity it is no one told me this like, did you guys have those moments where you were in the thick of it and you're like, no one told me it was like this? All the time. Like That's it's... actually where a lot of my mum rage came from because I just thought to myself, are you people lying? Have you been people lying to me like all these years? Like, why didn't anyone tell me it was going to be this hard? Mm. 
And I think that's why we do what we do and we are so passionate about you know, raising awareness and starting a revolution about postpartum in that women need to be cared for. They need to be, you know, respected in what they do. They need to be, you know, fed and in bed resting because it is, you know, the first 40 days can affect, they say, the first fo- the next 40 years of your life. It's so vital and important. And I think having some insight into what that time is going to be like or thinking about it is um is really critical. So, um, yeah, I'm so glad you had that midwife. And um, I think all the stats around different birth choices are really interesting in terms of evidence-based outcomes. Um, we probably don't have time to jump into that today. But um, I did want to ask a lighter question as we get near wrapping up is, what is your favourite um, mum hack? And you're welcome to say more than one. <laughs> <laughs> so, with motherhood support and motherhood businesses, I am actually terrible when it comes to all of this the actual mothering, like the doing part of mum hacks. And do, I I was talking with a friend about this the other day, actually. He's another business owner. And because her son has just started school and she's like, what? I have to get some box for him and paint it yellow? I don't have time for this. I've got five clients today. I've got, and she's like, this doesn't even matter. And I'm like, I know. And so it's interesting because actually when you start to push back against a lot of the expectations that can be placed on you and you see them as perhaps unrealistic or unnecessary expectations, you, you shift your value system to not actually value that stuff as much anymore and so things that perhaps some sometimes were like really important you actually don't care as much about anymore and and that's a lot of what I've experienced in um in my motherhood where I had this relationship with my daughter where um we've got such this kind of authentic and um and deep connection with each other that it just kind of cuts through a lot of the kind of I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. You can, absolutely. <laughs> I'm an absolute gutter mouth, so everyone buckle up. <laughs> it, it just comes through a lot of the bullshit, you yeah. know, like around like even just the relationship with our children, like kind of tricking them into complying and do mm. this and then they'll do this. And like I, I don't choose to spend my energy in that space mm. or even looking at mum hacks, to be honest with you. And so that's why like that is – my genuine response when I hear you say that, like, I don't even have any mum hacks. I, I don't know. I just Perfect. live my life with my daughter. Um, and probably a hack would just be taking the shortcut wherever I can. Like, if she wants to come in and sleep in my bed because it gets us a better rest, great, we're doing it. If I don't feel like cooking and I can afford to order in takeout, great, I'm doing it. You know, like, all the things that I think um, I can make easier in my motherhood I do it without guilt because I know that that is actually adding to me and what my daughter needs is me. She doesn't need all that stuff. I think you have just given us like the ultimate, I don't even want to say mum hack, but like motherhood (laughs) tip moving forward because it's so true just giving yourself permission to choose the path of least resistance for everyone, whether it gets them more rest, it gets them fed, it gets everyone through the day and it gives everyone, it gives you the chance, like you said, to be the mother that you want to be. And I think why do we need to hear that? Why do we need to be taught that as mothers? It should just be so instinctive. So thank you. I really, that's a great answer. It's mm. um, I'm not sure and if we're going to have anyone top that. I want to say as well that it's about values, okay, because I, yes. if I was a mom, you know, Renee, you love cooking. I don't. And so I choose to not spend my time and resources in that way, you know, whereas like I will value something else. So another mom might be like, you know what, actually, like I wouldn't hire a cleaner because I love cleaning and organizing. That is my outlet for stress relief or whatever, you know. So Said no one ever. (laughs) (laughs) I've had clients say that to me and they're like, I get stressed when if a cleaner were to come because I like doing it myself. I'm like, I don't relate, but. I'll support you. Yeah. <laughs> whatever floats your boat, lady. Whatever yeah. floats no, your boat. It's true. Yeah. So it all comes back to us and just going, okay, what what could be my mum hacks here? Like where can I just make things a little bit easier for myself, you know, within my resources that I have? I love it. Yeah, definitely. It. Thank you so much. We've got one final <gasps> question. Oh, yeah, go, Sophie. Or I was going to be like, oh, what are mum hacks? Like something to do with like shoe organization or like, I don't even know. <laughs> no, no, she, no, no, like, she flicks me. up Instagram and puts in hashtag mum hack. Quick, 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 find something. No, <laughs> no I think a mum hack is just anything that makes the process easier, easier. like any little yeah. tip. Like, Absolutely. you know, sometimes I do this, like for me, I also love cooking. Um, so, and I've learnt cook once, eat, you know, 
twice or three times. Like that's a little hack, you know, I just mm. rather than cooking every single meal from scratch every single day, like that takes so much time. Now you do bulk cooking, chuck some in the freezer and you've just got, you know, whatever it is to go in terms of mum hacks. But no, I love your answer and I think it's true. I think we all need to just do what we need to do based on our value system and that's all that really matters. Um, but Renee, your question? Just wrapping up, our last question, and we've stolen this from Brene Brown because we're like fangirling her at oh. the moment. And why um, wouldn't you? What <laughs> is on your bedside table? Oh, so, <laughs> okay, I'll be honest, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> I actually have a bunch of – oh, it's not going to be an answer like that. Okay, I, I made that out to be something. I was like, we're going in deep here. <laughs> this was supposed to be a lighthearted question. Although Mika did warn me. She's like, are you sure we should ask this? And I was like, yeah, sure. What could, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> this is a great introduction to who Renee and Mika really are, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, Sophie. No, I we will be professional one day. I I have this little I have a little box of crystals, and like I don't I'm not into all of that, but like I also slightly am. Like I really like like a sense of like connection with something and like a grounding object, and so I have like these little crystals next to my bed, and like my daughter loves them as well, and we like pick out little crystals together, and she holds one, and I hold one, and we like talk about. Um, you know our intentions and like we kind of use that to connect with each other and I use it to sort of like connect with myself and like my intention for the next day and all of that so like probably like a very unusual answer for the science of motherhood podcast but like I have a little box of crystals on my bedside table um I have uh, what else I have a face roller so like a um yeah it is it's re- I don't know if it does anything for my skin but like I just find it relaxing mm, um, that, that's listen, good in itself yeah I listen to a um like a meditation before I go to sleep and I just do the face roll on my face to calm down and I just have my airpods and I don't know probably like neurofern bottle for like you know like <laughs> random stuff um and yeah I think that's probably it Oh, Good answer. It, it I like wasn't it. prepared for that. Yeah, that's fine. I'm going to put my hand up and say I. So I'm a scientist. I'm all about evidence based. My mum's a hippie. She's so into crystals. I also have crystals on my bedside table. Oh, there we go. And um, I just feel like I'm always between these two worlds of like yeah. science, but I also love crystals. Um, so I think it's a great. I think that it's just another example of our capacity to remain curious, you know, and to know that we don't have all the answers. And that's inherently what science is about, isn't it? It's about curiosity and and learning and reflection. So, yeah. Being open to other things too. But my daughter absolutely loves them as well. So um, I think at the very least it's such a beautiful thing to have in the house. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm just going to put my hand up and support you. I know Renee's not a huge crystal. I feel so alone. I'm not really down with crystals. Um, I definitely have Nurofen on my bedside table. <laughs> the contrasts. <laughs> but, no, that was um, – yeah, that was that was a good answer, Sophie. We we started to go down the the wrong track, but we we came back. We we bounced back. That's okay. Look, that could be a whole nother topic. Like I'm, you know, happy to talk about sexuality and motherhood. Like you know, that could also be a conversation. We, we will definitely be having you back on the podcast. Yeah, I posted about that yesterday. I don't know. I I've seen I've seen that that's just, just taboo topics, right? Like anything yeah. that is taboo and supposedly off topic in motherhood. Like let's go there. I know why there's so many rules around motherhood. Like, the do you know what I mean? The fish I think, tank. Oh, yeah, let's fish, break that say, fish tank. I going full crack. circle, it is about the fish tank. And I think just wrapping up, that was one of the best analogies I've mm. ever heard because coming into this interview, okay. you know, hand on heart, I had to Google what does a sociologist actually do because coming from like wet lab, I was like, yeah. I know exactly what you know, a wet lab scientist kind of researcher does, what does a sociologist do? And I just thought this, as soon as I started reading into it, I thought, oh, this is going to be good. Because essentially, you know, my take from it was that you are essentially observing society. And I just, I'm fascinated with that whole big brother kind of concept 
and um, as a scientist, like I, I've, I've got one daughter, we're one and done, we're not having another one. But as a scientist, I was so curious to possibly have a second, almost like a mini experiment, because I thought, I wonder what it would be like if I did the same thing or if I tried to do <laughs> X, Y, Z differently, what would it be like? But, you know, we're dealing with human beings here, Renee. So that's Talk it. Talk to other mums. Talk to mums who have multiples. <laughs> well, Miku is about to pop, so I'm going to live vicariously <laughs> through her. So that is fine with me. Um, but... With all that said, Sophie, we're going to wrap up because I'm mindful of um, your valuable time. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been a spectacular interview. I'm so – like we have gone in all different tangents and we are so happy for you to have joined us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've loved the conversation and I think all of the tangents are kind of testimony to the the muddled and interconnected nature of motherhood as a topic. And yeah, I love talking about it. So thank you for having me. Thanks oh, very much. Our pleasure. So much valuable knowledge. Um, and do we want to jump into where people can find you? Yes, yeah. we'll oh. finish off with that. Sure. So um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Sophie Brock. Um, my podcast is The Good Enough Mother and my website is drsophiebrock.com. Um, and I'm launching a certification at the moment for professionals, teaching them all about motherhood studies. Um, I have a membership and mentoring. So, yeah, I would love to, to connect further with anyone listening. Perfect. We will put all of that in the show notes. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Bye. And thank you, Sophie, and for the work that you do. We yes. really appreciate it. Thank you. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.